I hate rude behavior in a man. Won't tolerate it. Well, hello, Grit Men, Grit Women. Welcome to the Grit Men Show. I'm your host, Chris Colcourse, otherwise known as Grit Man. And what I love about this show and this space is that one week we can be out on the prairie talking to a duck guide, and the next we can be at a country club talking to a golf course architect. Jay Blasey is our guest in this episode, and he recently finished a redesign at Lakeside Country Club in Houston. It's a good membership. Uh, most members members have earned their money versus inheriting it. And Jay wasn't the biggest name out there, but he earned the, the job. And I attended a ribbon-cutting ceremony, the opening ceremonies for the golf course a few weeks back, and the people that played an integral part in the project spoke. And I got to tell you, I was moved at the ceremony. It was unexpected. There was a lot of passion, a lot of emotion. And you could tell that this was more than just a, a job for Jay. It meant a lot to him, his career, his family. And it hit home, and it made me think about how most successful people, somewhere along the way, they got a break, and someone took a chance on them. But when you get that chance, you got to go earn it and seize it. We talk about that. I hope you enjoy the interview. We took a chance on Jay, and he took a chance on us, and uh, I think he was the right man for the job. A lot of grit in this one, some golf course design. Um, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Get out there and find your grit. Guys, he's a lot like males. He plays like males. He's tough. He likes to call himself grit man, whatever that means. Okay, thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. You said something last night in our ribbon cutting, ribbon cutting ceremony, or what do we call that last night? Yeah, ribbon cutting, saying grand opening. Grand opening, yeah. Lakeside, new golf course. And the times I'd met you before, I thought you had grit, but you had something, you said something last night that just brought it all together. And so I want you to, I want to start there. Mm-hmm. You talked about your first conversation that you had with C.W. Canfield, our director of golf. Why don't you take us through that and the question you asked him? Well, we, he, this was uh, in May of 2018, and he had reached out and said that they were interested in uh, finding a new golf course architect to, to work with the club. And he explained kind of the backstory behind Lakeside, and we were talking about who I was and you know, we had never met before. He didn't know who I was, I didn't know who he was. And so we had a long conversation and I took four pages of notes trying to learn everything that I could about the club, the golf course, the people, all that kind of stuff. And at the end, I asked him a question. I said, hey, can you tell me, is this process of trying to find a, a designer truly open? Um, many times, whether it's a municipality or a club, um, they might have somebody that they know, have worked with before, that's already in the fold and that they really want to work with, mm-hmm. but in order to check all the boxes, they need to talk to others and right. whatnot. And so from a designer standpoint, the process might not be truly open. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, before I drop everything and pour my heart and soul into this thing and get on an airplane and fly to Houston, do I actually have a chance at this thing or not? <laughs> Which I thought was a great question. Yeah. <laughs> because, I don't know, it kind of gets back to the, how do you get experience if somebody doesn't give you a chance to get experience? And we'll get into your story, mm-hmm. but it's chicken or egg sometimes. Mm-hmm. But everyone that's been successful got that break. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was a great question because you probably didn't want to seem cocky, 
but you don't want to waste a lot of time practicing just to be a number in a process. Once you go through it a couple times and you realize on the back end, oh, I never had a chance at that thing, you feel uh, ter terrible that you spent all this time and energy and, and whatnot. And, you know, you, for me, uh, I, I do a limited number of projects at a time. You really go all in and, and really pour your heart and soul into them. And so you're going to invest a lot of time and energy. You want there to be an opportunity there. Yeah. And what I liked what you said, you didn't say give me the project or give me some assurance that I'm going to be awarded it. You just wanted a fair shake. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, you're you willing know, to earn it. Absolutely. I would love the opportunity to compete for any, any job that's ex exciting. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, you, and it's a learning process both ways, right? So it's my job to learn as much as I can about the club, the golf course, the people. Is there a fit there from my side? looking towards the club uh, obviously the club is doing their due diligence and studying who is this guy what does he like to do design wise is his background is his philosophy a fit for our club how do the personalities mesh you know there's lots of stuff to work through there mm -hmm. so what are some of your your absolutes that you look for when taking on a new project well, I think the beauty of golf is that every site is different, every mm -hmm. club is different, every project is different, and so you can find excitement in a lot of different ways. So sometimes it might be an unbelievable piece of property, other times it might be the people involved. Um, and um, sometimes it's a particular challenge. I'm working with a golf club in uh, Washington State, north of Seattle, Everett Golf and Country Club. That sits on 95 acres, so it's about as small of a property as you can find. And to me, that was a really intriguing challenge, is what what could you get out of 95 acres? It's a pretty pretty nice piece of land, but it's so small. So that's a real challenge to see. What's a, what's a normal amount of acreage that you need? Well, it kind of changes over time, <laughs> and <laughs> poignant with the golf ball rollback. Right. But, you know, in the in the old days, golf courses probably range from 85 up to 125 acres. Uh, in modern times, more often than not, it's over 150 acres. So the footprint has gotten much, much bigger uh, over time. So 95 is about as small as you'd ever find for 18 holes of golf. Okay. So you said something when you, you came down here and did a town hall. And so there, it was a lengthy process to get to where we are today, which is the second day this new course is open. Um, and we'll get into that. But one of the things I heard you say early on was that you thought our old course was too challenging for high handicappers. You want to touch on that? Some yeah, things so, that stuck out? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that I do when I start working with a club or a golf course is to just study play. And so I just came out here and, and watched people play golf and right. took a lot of notes. And one of the things that you would see is that if you were somebody who couldn't hit the ball 280 yards off the tee, or you couldn't hit a wedge 130 yards high in the air and land it softly. This golf course was just extremely challenging. Water was in play on 14 holes. There were a lot of forced carries. There weren't many bailouts. I think there was bunker left and bunker right on 14 out of the 18 holes. So what you found was that the shots that the average golfer was being asked to hit were the ones that are hardest for them, right? Narrow fairways, thicker rough 
bunkers or hazards on both sides so there really wasn't a bailout forced carries all of those types of things led to not only really really challenging golf but very similar golf kind of hitting the same shot over and over and over again and so that was one big takeaway ironically at the same time you know if you are a bomber if you can hit it high and land it soft it made the golf pretty simple, right? It was, you know, stay between the trees, stay below the hole. And that was really the, the proper strategy on any golf hole. And so, um, you know, particularly at a private club where somebody's gonna play 20, 50 rounds a year for many years or decades to come, in my opinion, you really want a golf course that is worthy of a, a long-term relationship, something that's gonna keep you interested, that's gonna provide a different challenge every day, that's gonna keep you thinking, that's gonna ask you to hit different types of shots, play differently in different weather conditions, uh, will change if the whole location changes, those types of things. And so, felt like studying the golf course when we first got out here, there was an opportunity there to to maybe strike a better balance for who who was going to be playing the golf course on a daily basis. Okay. So you said make it more enjoyable or easier for higher handicappers, but still challenge the low handicapper, which when I heard that, I was like, that sounds great. But that's kind of like me being able to eat Mexican food every day and not gain weight. <laughs> this is awesome. Right, but yeah. So, so, but how do you do that by making it easier but still challenging for the good golfer? Well, it sounds counterintuitive, yep. but again, the beauty is that the average golfer and the scratch golfer play two very different games. And let's just for baseline, when we say high handicap or like where's the cut, what's the kind of cutoff? I would, I would say maybe above 15 and above. Okay. Right. Some of it's less related to handicap and maybe more related to swing speed and whatnot, but um, you know, the for 15 or above or a slower swing speed again the things that are going to create challenges are water hazards trees rough narrow fairways forced carries lack of bailouts right so um, in order to make the golf course more fun and more playable for that player if we have wider fairways to play to fewer forced carries instead of having bunkers on both sides of the hole if maybe there's bunker on one side of the hole but fairway on the other side of the hole that gives them a bigger target and I use that as an example just take an approach shot let's say the existing golf course has an approach shot and there's a bunker left and a bunker right the average golfer is intimidated by that approach shot they're trying to just make contact with the golf ball. They don't have great control over where it's going. So they're intimidated on the approach shot, probably gonna do worse because of that. Let's say they hit it up there in a bunker. A bunker is a really challenging shot for the average golfer. Yeah. So they might you know, chunk one, they might blade one over the green, start playing ping pong, it, it just compounds. Take that same shot for a scratch golfer. Bunker left, bunker right. Well, now they don't have to think at all. They know, don't go left, don't go right, just hit it at the middle, and they're good enough to execute. So that, that shot is pretty simple for them. Now, if you take away that bunker and turn it into fairway, what seems like it should be easier actually 
forces the scratch golfer to think a lot more. Because that bunker isn't over there on the left, now they have to decide, well, do I hit it right at the hole, or because there's room to miss left, do I aim for the left edge of the green and fade it in there? If I do, do I want to hit it high and land it softly? Do I want to kind of chase it in there? If I'm going to chase it in there, do I want to chase it in there with cut spin, or do I want to draw it in there and kill it off the slope? All of a sudden, they've got seven different things to think about, and when you ask a good golfer to think, all of a sudden, they usually execute worse. So while it seems counterintuitive, the things that are challenging for scratch players are very different than the things that are challenging for average golfers, and there are ways to accomplish both at the same time. I'll make sure I understood that. So what I heard you say is you're allowing the higher handicapper to think less, but you're forcing the good golfer to think more? I don't know if the average golfer has to think less they probably just have more room to play golf more worry room less. to miss yes correct worry okay. less yep play with a little more freedom when they miss a green so if an average golfer misses a green in a bunker that's super challenging if they miss the green in the fairway now they could use their putter they could use their seven iron they could use a sandwich and what's comfortable for them might be different for one player it might be a putter for another it's a seven iron for another it's a sandwich they have that option to play to their strength to keep moving to advance the ball you know for scratch players the things that really determine how well they score are internal green contours and things like that and so um, again the, the things that make golf fun and playable for the average golfer usually make golf interesting and challenging for good players let's stay on lakeside here and what were some of the things that you focused on that you wanted to incorporate into this design well we went through an extensive process where we talked to the membership and we tried to learn about what they wanted to see in a golf course you know it's unrealistic to have a thousand members playing the role of golf architect although right every golfer usually has those thoughts i was concerned that it's kind of like you you ask for our input which we appreciated but i was didn't know what you were going to do with all, all of that input so in my opinion it's it's very important to engage a membership to learn about the membership to understand what's important to them what they think good goals would be without diving too deep into the weeds we don't need a thousand people chiming in on the bunker on the third hole right that's not that's counterproductive but if the golf course that they play today doesn't have a lot of pinnable locations and they would really like to have more hole locations on their greens so that the greens don't get worn out in certain spots and that there can be more interest around the greens that's that's an example of a really worthy goal if we have water in play on 14 holes and they say hey we really like our water but we'd like not to lose seven golf balls around in the water that's a worthy goal then it's my job to figure out okay how can we do that and how can we do that best on the site how can we make lakeside the best that it can be working towards those goals that the members have have set for us i'm going off memory but i remember in the town hall that i went to it was you asked if you want a drivable par four um, if you wanted the length of the par threes to be different. Maybe you, I don't know if you were saying that or those were some of the things, uh, being able to hit a driver on the driving range. Mm -hmm. 
better short game area. And so I feel like what I've seen so far, I haven't played it yet, but you, you incorporated a lot of those things. Yeah, so we went, again, we went through an extensive study. We talked to hundreds and hundreds of members and got their feedback. Um, I think we whittled that down to what we called seven goals that had kind of subsets to them or whatever. So as it relates to the practice facilities, Lakeside had two driving ranges, both of which were too small. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we heard loud and clear that we'd like to have a, a driving range where we can hit driver and hit off a of grass and play into different winds and see the ball land and all those types of things. And so we were able to do that. Um, we heard that the short game practice areas were pretty limited for a club of of this size and with the use that there is. So we found space and now we have you know four times as much in terms of short game practice areas. Same thing with the putting green. Because the club was blessed to have two driving ranges, we don't need two, we need one good one. Mm-hmm. Giving up one of those two allowed us to add a little short course, which is a great amenity that the club didn't have before in the same way. They did play some holes out in the driving range, but not a dedicated short course. And we think that will be a great asset to the club, good for junior programs, take a little pressure off the big golf course. So you had lots of goals that related to kind of practice and other amenities. The club had invested in building this great new clubhouse, and yet there was kind of a disconnect between the clubhouse and the golf course. So we heard loud and clear that the members wanted the the course and the clubhouse to be much better connected. We were able to do that by shifting the location of number one tee and number 18 green, uh, opening up some long views across the property. So from the clubhouse, you can see out across the property more. From the golf course, you can see back to the clubhouse more things like that. And then like we talked about, whether it was variety and using different clubs on the par threes or using every club in your bag or interacting with the sun and wind and playing in different directions, whether it was minimizing the the impact of the water, things like that. There were all sorts of little kind of subset goals, all of which was kind of on top of the need to invest in infrastructure. We already knew that we were at a point where we needed a new irrigation system, we needed new drainage, we wanted to have great capacity for when there's big storms in the area uh, to make sure that we can be playing golf as soon as possible after those big storms. All of those were kind of already givens, um, but the others, those other goals kind of sat on top. Okay. It was interesting to, I mean, full disclosure, I voted for the golf course redo. So Thank you. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. But <laughs> I, I would say I was somewhat middle of the road. I've been a member five, six years. I don't have these memories of playing whole, the old number four with my grandpa. Like So I wasn't nostalgic about anything. And so I could have probably been convinced to do a mild redo, not a reroute, or what we ultimately ended up doing. I'm glad we did it. But what was interesting to me was just listening to other members and what their hot button was. And one of them was some of the older members in particular, and maybe I'll take that back, doesn't have to be older, thought that the use or using that land that used to be the north driving range turning into par three was the worst idea ever. And I'd listen, and maybe that was coupled with, they like to show up five minutes before their tee time and run over there and hit a few balls and then go to the first tee. Mm -hmm. So were you surprised by that and and what's your, I guess, response? 
Well, I think that any club that I've ever worked with, you've got, you're going to have a wide range of members, and they're each going to have their own unique background. They're going to have their, their own game, mm -hmm. right? And they're going to bring those past experiences with them to the table. And anytime you're proposing change, that's going to, you know, be challenging for some. There's three major hurdles to passing any project. The first is money. Uh, you know, it's hard to spend money and, and, you know, asking for assessments or dues increases and things like that can be challenging for some. Perhaps the most important one or the biggest challenge of all is downtime, right? So here we are, we've invested to be at this club. This is a place we know and love. We want to spend time with our friends here. I don't want to lose my golf course for a year, right? right? And that's probably particularly true of older members who may not have as many years left to play. Um, you know, if I have five years left to, to play, I don't want to lose one mm -hmm. of my golf course. Very reasonable take. And then the third is, you know, I'm just attached to what we have, right? I've built memories here over decades, and I don't want to change things. Mm -hmm. And all of those are very reasonable things, and it's fine. And anytime you're going to have a vote, you're not going to get 100%, right? right? That's just not the way the world works. And so, you know, recognizing that you're going to have a wide range of people weighing in on the topic. You want to be fair to everybody. You want to give everybody a chance to share their viewpoint. And, and you just hope that while some people may not get there, that, uh, that the majority will uh, take a reasonable approach, listen, and, and figure out, hey, what do we think is best in the long-term interest of the club? How can mm -hmm. we leave the club better than we found it? And, um, you know, we all set out with high goals and expectations and, you know, we recognize that there's fear or trepidation going into any project, but more often than not, um, I think on the backside of projects, um, people feel good about what they end up with. And so many, many stories of, yeah, we passed our vote, you know, 55% to 45%. If you polled our members five years later, it would it would sound like it passed 85 to 15, right? <laughs> things like that, right? And so there, there's stories like that everywhere. And, and you just hope that people are, are reasonable and that uh, the club can kind of stay together and, and enjoy enjoy the process once you decide to go down that road. Let's go back to where we started. I hope I didn't shortchange you, making it seem like you didn't have a resume or any experience, but the point I was trying to make is that there are some maybe more experienced or names that have been around, like a Nicholas or a Cor Crenshaw or Gil Hans, is that his name? Mm -hmm. Who are some others? Uh, Fazio. Tom, Tom Doak. Tom Fazio. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a bunch that have been around for a long time and done yeah. a lot of work. So your yep. last name's Blake. If you want to punch me in the face, go ahead. Many people don't know who I am. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it's okay to be unassuming. Yeah. But when I heard that we had hired you and, and I heard you speak, I, th I said right away, this project's important to him. He needs this to be a success. Is that is that true? Well, I feel that way about every project, you know. Uh, yeah, no, I, you know, again, I, I'm a one-person operation, mm -hmm. and so every project that I take on, um, you know, I I try to commit 100% and go all in and, and and pour my heart and soul into it. And, you know, when, when it's the design phase or the construction phase, I don't sleep great at night because I'm thinking about every little 
detail, you know, morning, noon, and night, whatever. And so, um, yeah, I think, in my opinion, the best golf courses come about when people are passionate about them and when they invest the time to get the details right, and particularly in the field during construction. And so, I, over the 20 plus years I've been in the business, I've found that the more time you can be on site and involved in the in the details, the better the results will be. And so that's the approach that I take, is I wanna really pour my heart and soul into each project and, and be there uh, as much as I can. And you touched on that last night in your, your comments. Was it 39 times that you've flown in to be here this, this year? This year, 30, Just this year. 39 <laughs> flights into Houston. Yeah, my, my kind of weekly routine this week, it wasn't set in stone, but usually I'd kind of fly in Sunday night on a red eye from mm -hmm. California, land uh, at, at uh, George Bush at five something in the morning, come straight here, uh, shower before the sun came up, and then be out there for a full day on, on Monday and pass out about eight o'clock at night, yeah. and then be here probably Tuesday excuse me, Tuesday, Wednesday, and fly home maybe late Wednesday night. So now I'm getting back to California at, you know, I don't know, one or two in the morning on Wednesday night. And then I was also working on a project in San Francisco, a little nine-hole par three golf course called Golden Gate Park. And so then Thursday I'd be up at Golden Gate Park, Thursday, Friday up there. And then over the weekends trying to get anything done in the office and things like that and kind of rinse and repeat but yeah thir 39 <laughs> flights in this year there was plenty before that but uh, yeah it was a busy year for sure why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit of your background and how you got into golf course design and maybe some of the projects you've worked on well i grew up in madison wisconsin um my dad was a golfer is a golfer he fell in love with golf caddying. He, he grew up on the south side of Chicago. He caddied at Beverly Country Club, which is an old Donald Ross course. And he loved golf so much that he built a putting green in the backyard. So when I was a little kid, I had a putting green in my backyard. My parents had plastic clubs at the hospital when I was born. So golf's been a part of my life, my whole life. And as a little kid, I was drawing golf holes at four or five. We'd go out to dinner and I'd flip the placemat over and draw golf holes. So figured out from a pretty early age that this was something that I wanted to do. Found out that most people got a degree in landscape architecture. So that's what I did. Went to the University of Wisconsin and reached out to pretty much everybody in the golf design world to see if there's an opportunity. And uh, pretty much right out of school, I landed a job in California with Robert Trent Jones too. So a big firm that had been around for 40 years and does work all over the world. Um, and I was there for 11 years. And during that time, I had the opportunity to be involved or touch projects, probably over 100 projects in some way, shape, or form, whether it was a potential project in, in Europe or drawing plans for one of the other designers of a golf course in Arkansas or things like that. And I really had the chance to kind of be the primary person on three three projects. And the first one was Chambers Bay, which was up in Washington, uh, that hosted the 2010 U.S. Amateur and the 2015 U.S. Open. That was a municipal golf course and a former sand and gravel mine, a Lynx golf course. And so that was kind of a dream project in terms of, um, you know, I love Lynx golf. 
it was uh, municipally owned, major championships, all that kind of stuff. Uh, had a chance to build a practice facility for Stanford University's golf teams, which was kind of a, a local project there that was really a very unique practice facility in its size. Um, we did different things with different grasses and sand types to try to give them a competitive advantage. Uh, and then a golf course in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So if people have heard of Patriot Golf Day or the Folds of Honor Foundation, we built a golf course there called the Patriot. Um, and so that their headquarters for the foundation are there as well. Very unique piece of property, great terrain. Uh, maybe not what people would think of if they think of Tulsa, Oklahoma, but uh, a special piece of property there. And then I started my own firm in 2012 and got to go back to my uh, birth state of Wisconsin and redo a golf course called Century World that hosted the U.S. Senior Open this year. So that was exciting. Uh, and then to Southern California uh, and worked at an old club there called Santa Ana Country Club, dated back to the early 1900s. But the course that was there was basically a 1970s golf course. And so ultimately, we rebuilt that golf course on the same property, built a brand new golf course that was meant to look and feel like it was from the early 1900s. Um, and so those are kind of the, the big projects that were leading up to this one, if you will. Yeah. Teach us something about golf course design, maybe using historical um, design context and then maybe what you try to weave into here at Lakeside or some of your other projects well I, and who are your I, inspirations sure yeah. so I think you know as we touched on earlier one of the things that's special or unique about golf is that the playing fields are always different mm -hmm. and so as a designer you know the first thing that you're trying to study and understand and react to is the land itself is it a big piece of property? Is it a small piece of property? Is it uh, um, does the is the boundary of the property simple, or is it complex? You know, you could have two sites that are both 150 acres, but one of them could be a square with pretty benign topography, and that's pretty easy to fit a golf course onto. You might have another 150 acre site that has very unusual property boundaries with some skinny little fingers and other things and some very severe topography and it might not be big enough to fit a golf course on so reacting to the land is probably the first thing and then I, I would say in my experience the best golf courses have a couple of components to them that are pretty consistent the first would be what I call a great routing so the routing in, in layman's terms or simple terms is just where do the golf holes go and and how do those 18 puzzle pieces fit together I'm sure every golfer has been on some piece of property whether it has a golf course on it or not and said oh that looks like a golf hole or I could make a golf hole right here this would make a great golf hole and that's that's cool but in terms of designing a golf course the real challenge isn't finding one good golf hole it's crafting 18 golf holes and weaving them together in a compelling fashion. And so the routing is really critical to that. And it's not only from tee to green, but from green to the next tee. How do the, how do the holes connect and how do they sequence? I saw a golf course a couple of weeks ago that 
each of the 18 holes was was fine. If you played the golf course on a simulator, you'd say, oh, that was a really nice golf course. Mm -hmm. But the connection between the green to the next tee was really challenging. You might have a 300-yard walk from the green to the next tee, or you might have to cross over two holes to get to the next tee. And so the actual experience of playing the golf course was nowhere near as good as just the collection of holes. So you've got the routing. How do the holes fit on the property? Let's, let's, let's pause there. So do you think that, uh, like, if possible, do you like to where you walk off a green and you're going to be close to the next tee? Again, uh, everything's site-specific, client-specific. What are you trying to achieve? Are we trying to craft a golf course we want to uh, play every day mm -hmm. and we really think it's very critical to be walkable? Or is this a resort golf course where we're uh, trying to get as much drama. We think people are going to show up once every five years and we want it to be as dramatic as possible and therefore it might be okay to have a longer walk from one hole to another maybe because everybody's going to be in a golf cart or something like that. My personal preference, yes, I would love to make golf courses uh, very, very walkable and have mm -hmm. short green to tee connections. I find that to be uh, compelling and um, certainly here at Lakeside that was a really big goal was to try to make sure the green to tee walks were were short and simple easy to navigate and things like that well thank you because I think for this first year we're either walking or on path, <laughs> paths anyway <laughs> well my my sincere hope is that many people will walk 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 yeah, obviously like there's a few months of the year that it's uh, it's it's not a great climate to be walking in but for the most part if, if you can walk you'll get you'll get to know the golf course so much better you'll get to feel it better you'll get to feel it as it was meant to be experienced and so hopefully people will fall in love with walking yeah, so there's terms that get thrown around like parkland mm -hmm. uh, was our old course a parkland type course is that yeah how you so say I, th it? I think parkland probably just refers to a golf course that's tree lined okay is, is how most people would refer to that you're going to find parkland golf courses in the upper midwest you're going to find them in the northeast you can find them pretty much anywhere i think the big question would be did the golf course emanate from a natural parkland setting or was it a golf course built in an open farm field and then rows of trees were planted between the holes right okay um, but parkland usually probably means tree lined you know so often people oftentimes people talk about there's a parkland golf course or a lynx golf course right mm -hmm. and then people many golfers the golfing public when they hear the word lynx might think open golf course, not a lot of trees. The reality is that the definition of Lynx golf relates to adjacency to the sea and sandy soils and all sorts of kind of uh, inside baseball type of things about that. But I think the general public thinks of Parkland is tree-lined, Lynx is open. What would Augusta National be? <laughs> A hybrid uh, in terms of you know Mackenzie and Bobby Jones the designers of the golf course both loved the old course at St. Andrews which was a Lynx golf course mm -hmm. and many of the characteristics of Augusta really are um, kind of a byproduct of their love for the old course at St. Andrews the setting is much more Parkland setting in terms of prior to being a golf course it was a nursery and so there were lots of uh, you know there's lots of vegetation and trees throughout the whole property I think Mackenzie wrote about 
the use of trees on golf courses and not wanting to have lines of trees down the hole. So if you look at Augusta, prior to their Hootie Johnson tree planting phase, what you would have seen were groves of trees. So maybe a triangle, triangle grove of trees between three holes. But for the most part, the corridors of the holes were more open. They would bleed from one hole into another without just lines of trees separating the two holes. They've kind of gone a little overboard in the past 20, 30 years, kind of trending <laughs> maybe the wrong way and planting trees lining the holes. But um, so it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a hybrid. I think okay. most people call it a Parkland golf course as opposed to a Lynx. Okay. So you mentioned McKenzie. Um, there's a, in my research, CB McDonald. Does he have an influence on your design? Again, you know, I think all golf architects probably try to study history and understand and learn from those that came before. Um, I certainly have an appreciation for a wide variety of designers from different decades and try to take different who, things. Who, so who's your Mount Rushmore of designers? <laughs> well, again, I think, I, you know, I hate to give all these qualified answers, but I think so much of it would depend on what site are we talking about yeah. and and what you know I, i'm always curious to know what was the goal of the project who was the client what was the site so i'm a huge fan of mckenzie um cb mcdonald and seth rayner i think are are best known for um they would they would use similar holes over and over again we refer to them as the template holes and they would they would incorporate those same holes in different locations and I think the the beauty of what they did was they adapted that hole to different sites and they made it feel um, they did a brilliant job of fitting those ideas onto different sites okay. and can you give us an example well the, some of those template holes might be a, a redan hole which is a normally a par 3 uh, that has a green that runs kind of on a diagonal from front right to back left the back portion of the green usually runs away from the player it's usually kind of um, fortified in front with either deep bunkers or a, a face wall there sometimes there's a reverse redan where they kind of just flip the orientation or whatnot um, and so they've done you know, there's a Redan at National Golf Links. There's a Redan at, uh, that they didn't do, but others did at, at Shinnecock right next door. There's a Redan at um, Shore Acres and different places all over the country. And here at Lakeside, we did a Redan. So one of the things that I studied at Lakeside was, okay, here we are. We're in the south. We have a flat piece of property. How do you get the best golf course uh, out of flat property in the south and so okay where would you go to study who has the best golf courses on flat land in the south and immediately you kind of go to Charleston South Carolina and there's Yeamans Hall and Country Club of Charleston both CB McDonald Seth Rayner uh, influences there and so you I went there and studied those golf courses and looked to see what they did and where and how and thought that we could bring some of those elements here to Texas. Had Lakeside been in Long Island, I don't think I'd take that same approach. Long Island has a number of different golf courses that McDonald and Rayner worked on and had those templates. 
Texas doesn't have anything like this. We're the first golf course to have anything like this, to my knowledge. And so thought that was reasonable and, and meaningful. And Texas, Houston area didn't have any McDonald and Rainer, didn't have McKenzie, didn't have Ross, didn't have uh, Thomas, were never here. And so bringing some of those kind of what we refer to as the golden age of golf architecture when these designers were active, you know, bringing some of those elements here seemed like that could be a, a neat thing. And, I, and it works on the site, right? I, wouldn't, I might not have taken that same approach had the site been very different. But we've seen that it worked elsewhere, thought that it could work here. Because Houston and Texas didn't have anything like that, that, that might be a good approach as well. So we have a Redan, we have a Baritz, we have a Road Hole Green. Um, right, so we so have Baritz a few. Is Number eight, our, our, number eight. But what is, is our that? Brits. So Brits again usually played as a long par three. I've actually built a Brits green on a par five before, um, but so it's the shape of the green. So it's usually a long rectangle. Okay. Uh, so it's much deeper than it is wide, and it's kind of broken into three parts. You have a front portion that's high, a middle section that's a big swale or low, and a back portion that's high, and. Sometimes, as you play the hole, the, the front pad and the swale are not part of the green. They're more part of the approach. Sometimes they are part of the green. Sometimes, if they're part of the green, it's set up so that you put a flag in the front portion or down in the swale. Other times, you don't put a, a, a flag there. Here at Lakeside, because we get so much play, we built the eighth greens, our biggest green. Um, and we wanted all portions, the front, the, the, the swale, and the back to all be pinnable so that we could spread out the wear traffic. You said road hole. Is that 17 like at St. Andrews? 17 at the okay. old course is known as the road hole. Yep. Yeah, I played it, but I, I couldn't believe the angle I had to take over the tee with the hotel there. So we, don't <laughs> have a, we don't have a hotel. No, we, didn't, we didn't put a hotel up there, no. All right, so, so what is a road hole? Well, so the, again, the road hole, 17th at, at the old course. There, it's a, a played as a par four, dog leg from left to right. The the further you carry the ball right off the tee over the railroad sheds, um, the better angle you get into the green. So the green is set up in such a way that it's a very wide green, wide and shallow. And it's set on a little bit of a diagonal, again, from kind of front right to back left. And right in the front center is a really deep little pot bunker. Okay. And so that becomes the dominant feature. And then behind the green is a you know, green sits as kind of an elevated pad. And then behind the green is the road. And so here at Lakeside, we actually chose to, to utilize that concept of a green complex on a par five and and personally i think that green set complex works really really well on a par five particularly if you have a lot of width in the second shot landing area which we did and the reason for that is because of that green complex depending on where the hole location is and depending on play and wind you might want to be attacking the green from the very, very left edge of the fairway. So if we can have a 130-yard wide fairway, we can give players 
a ton of choices on how to approach the green. So we have a super, super wide fairway. Depending on the whole location, you can, you can play way to the right where you'll be up on a higher ground and you can see the green surface of the green and figure it out that way. If you play to the left, maybe you shorten the hole a little bit uh, and might work better with the wind that day. But um, So we applied it here on a, on a par 5. It's our 12th hole. Okay. And it's a longer par 5. Oftentimes we'll play into the wind. But think that that green complex will work well for players maybe approaching with a wedge uh, because it's a pretty challenging shot. Yep. The road hole at, at the old course is a, is a par four in name only. Right. Anybody who makes four there is very, very happy. Yeah. So my brother-in-law played some college golf, and whenever we play together or travel and go play a new course, he says, we're playing the back tees because every course designer or architect designs from the back tees forward. And then he just throws some other tees in there for the just to get to some yardages. So would you agree, disagree with that? Comment? I'll vehemently disagree with no. that. Good. Um, <laughs> then, I, then I can disagree with my brother-in-law. Absolutely. Uh, I won't speak for any other architects. I think it's fair to assume, uh, always a bad thing to do, but probably safe to assume that the, the tour players who are in the golf design business, whether it was Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman or whoever, perhaps they they approach things that way. That's their game, right? For me, um, I, I would like to think about all the players who are going to play the golf course and how that works. Um, I find that the back tees in modern golf don't necessarily relate to the best golf course. And the reason for that is that because of how far players hit the golf ball, in order to challenge players who play those back tees, the golf courses need to get super, super long. So if you're playing a golf course at 7,500 yards, every par four is going to be 450 plus. So you lose variety just because of the length of how far people hit it. For me, personally, you know, I might hit it, I don't know, 265 off the tee, something like that. I find that a 64 to 6600 yard golf course provides the opportunity to have maybe drivable par fours and par fours that are 465 where I have to hit a driver and a hybrid or a driver and a three wood or something like that. So you're getting a great deal more variety at 6,500 yards than you would at 7,300 yards. So not only are you trying to look at it from the, a wide range of player ability standpoint, but again, you're trying to relate to the land. So it might not just be the length of the tees on each hole. It might be, is there an alternate angle that we can incorporate? So one day you play from the left and the other day you play from the right. Our 16th hole here at Lakeside is a shorter par 3, and we have kind of two different angles of, of where the tees can be set up. And so, again, for a golf course that people are going to play many times over and over again the same year, the ability to shift where those tee blocks are, now you kind of get two, two holes for the price of one, if you will. So um, you're, as a designer, you're, you're trying to think about all golfers we probably all start with the bias of our own game if we're if we're tr truly honest mm -hmm. and understanding that but um, 
you know, this is our, our job, our craft, to, to try and understand who's going to play and think about all those aspects. Got it. So educate us on how you, the design process. So is it you start with, I don't know if you have proprietary software or you use Google images or you fly a drone. I mean, how do you get the boundary outlines and then how do you start putting holes in there? How does all that come together? Well, the vast majority of projects over the last 10 or 15 years are more renovations or restorations of existing golf courses. Okay. So with that, you can go to the property, see, excuse me, see what's there. There's probably mapping already as to what's, what's the topography and all that. But as a designer, typically you're starting with three things. An aerial photo of the site, a topographic map of the site, and then investigating the site itself, going to the property, learning about all the things that don't show up on a map. So when you visit a property, you see the off-site views that you don't see on a map. You smell what's out there, whether that's good or bad. Yeah. You, you, you can hear, is there a nearby road that you're gonna hear, or is there an ocean that you're gonna hear, things like that. So all the stuff that doesn't show up on a map, mm -hmm. you're trying to take note of when you're on site. So. You get started by visiting the property, trying to figure out what's special about it, what are the things we want to take advantage of, what are the things that we want to stay away from or avoid. Um, and then you use your other tools, the aerial photo, the topographic map, and you start you maybe lay out holes to see how they might fit together. For me personally, it's, it's a back and forth process. So it's seeing the site, understanding the site, coming up with some ideas on paper, taking that paper, going back to the site and verifying. Did, did what I think I put on paper, does it actually work out here or not work out here? If I have two or three different ideas, which one makes the more sense in the field and going, so it's going back and forth that way. All right, but is it, I mean, are you, it's like a set of house plans where you have a uh, drawn to scale, I mean, or when you start putting stuff in there? Like how do you do your spacing? And So there's typically kind of three steps in the process. The first is what I refer to as master planning. Okay. And so that's where we're just trying to get an understanding of what fits on the site. How is that gonna work together? You know, if you're starting from scratch, where's the clubhouse gonna be? Where's the maintenance facility gonna be? All of those types of things. Where are the golf holes gonna go? It's, it's a big puzzle, right? So you got, 18 holes you basically have 20 to 23 puzzle pieces you have your 18 holes clubhouse maintenance practice facilities how are those puzzle pieces going to fit so that's master planning that's our big picture vision at 10,000 feet the next phase is the design phase where we're trying to put together plans and specifications that we could use to build the golf course and so typically we put together a set of plans somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 different plans from the route plan, where do the holes go, clearing, how are we going to strip the site depending on what's on it, if it's raw land or an existing golf course, how are we going to move earth, how are we going to shape the golf course. <coughs> Usually there's a, a separate irrigation designer who's doing irrigation plans along mm -hmm. with what you're doing. So you put together this big set of plans that can be used 
to bid the project. So maybe you're going to have three or four different contractors who come bid the project. And um, so you'll use those plans and specs for that. In my personal opinion, those plans are a starting point rather than a finishing point. And many golf design firms in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s would essentially draw a set of plans and then a contractor would go build that set of plans without there being a lot of on-site time or any kind of real deviation from the plans. For me personally, those plans, again, are that start point. They're, they're really good at understanding how many square feet of greens do we think we're going to have that's going to fit on this site so that we can properly budget for that. We could put together a realistic schedule as to how long it's going to take. But what's drawn on the plan usually is not what's going to be best in the field. It's probably a very good starting point, get you started in the field, but then the magic happens in construction. So we start with master planning, we put together design plans, we bid the project, we get started, and then the magic happens in the construction phase. Yeah. So I just thought of this now, but I don't even remember. Did you present plans before we hired you or after we hired you? <laughs> <laughs> so the interview process at, at clubs or with projects is different. Some, some courses or clubs are interviewing designers and, and basically just trying to get a feel for personality and are we comfortable with this person. Other clubs say, you know, we think we need to do some kind of work and we want, as part of the interview process, we want you to share ideas on what would you do and why would you do it and whatnot. Um, and so, um, and, and sometimes the process morphs. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it starts out as, oh, we just want to get to know you and then uh, they get to know each of the designers and then say, well, now we'd like some of your ideas. Right. <laughs> More often than not, it's it's what can we get out of you before we have to hire you type of thing or whatever. And that's probably a little bit of a dance. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't want to show everything, but you if you're interested in the project, you you want to be hired. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and you know the reality is that it can cut both ways, right? So if you share an idea and they fall in love with it, uh, it might get you the job. If you share an idea and it scares them, it might cost you the job. Right. So to your point, it, it's always a delicate dance and you, you never know who the ultimate decision maker is going to be on the other side of the table and what their hot button issue is or whatnot. So um, I think as it relates to Lakeside, um, I don't know if it was required or requested, but I think I did share ideas as part of the process just okay. to say, here's what I could do or you know, here's some thoughts that I have. You shared last night that uh, there were some things that happened in your personal life, and then with this um, over the construction, I want to get to your hat that that makes this pretty special for you. So you you had a your first child. I did, yeah. So um, the first phone call I got from C.W. Canfield, the director of golf here, back in May May of 2018, he called. I went back and checked all my notes and went through old photos and stuff like that. I was assembling a crib that day, so <laughs> my wife was five months pregnant and we were getting ready to have our first and only uh, son. And and so um, 
ultimately worked our way through the interview process, and I found and my son was born on September 19th, and and ultimately CW, I talked to him on the 20th, and that's when he informed me that the club was going to hire me and that they were going to sign the contract next month at a board meeting or whatever. So Lakeside will always be connected and special to me just with the relationship of when we were getting ready to have our son and and then his birth and. A few weeks ago, uh, I brought him here Thanksgiving week, and so he had the chance to come to the property for the first time, and he was fascinated because not only was there golf here, but there were lakes that you could fish in. And yeah. so one of the members who I met during the interview process, uh, Rob Muller, took took my son out fishing uh, here on the lakes a couple weeks ago, and he caught a giant catfish, and so he lit up like a candle. So the journey has been extra special just as it relates to kind of our own family, and so uh, Lakeside, for me, will always be linked with our son. That's awesome. So there's sometimes there's challenges that arrive with a, um, a project that are unforeseen, and that happened with our superintendent, Terry, and uh, you're wearing a hat today says Hutch. You want to share a few words about your relationship that you formed with him, what he meant to you? Yeah, so Terry Hutcherson was the longtime superintendent here at Lakeside Country Club and a, a very unique character. He was a true cowboy from Oklahoma and always wearing his cowboy hat and his John Wayne shades and uh, off property wearing his boots and belt buckle and everything. And, and just, you know, uh, just the sweetest soul you'd ever meet. He was always kind of happy and smiling and giggling, and there was always a laugh. You were, you were just always in a good mood around Terry, and nobody wanted this project to happen more than him. You know, I got involved in 2018. He's been thinking about this thing for 20 years, right? And so I met Terry during the interview process, and um, I found it interesting at one point, CW, I had come for multiple interviews with committees and all this stuff, and at one point CW called and he, he said, things are going really well, but we need you to come back for another visit, and we need to make sure that Terry can work with you. <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> and so I was talking to my wife, and I told her what was going on, and I said, all right, how do I make sure that, you know, Terry the cowboy likes me. I'm from Wisconsin. I live in California. And she goes... Well, make him cookies. You like cookies. He's <laughs> yeah. got to like cookies or whatever. And so I started bringing cookies every time I'd come visit. And he liked the cookies. Yeah. And eventually, you know, ultimately I got hired and Terry and I became very close. And uh, a year or two later, he kind of put his arm around me and goes, you know, those cookies were a big, played a big role in you being here or something. <laughs> How about you bring some next visit or whatever? Yeah. So, but so anyway, Terry and I got very close through the process. We traveled to go study other projects before this project started and things like that and so eventually we, we you know finally win the vote and then the project gets started and we're out here and we're going and you know Terry jumped right in he was out there building bunkers with the crew and he was never happier than he was on a little sand pro or whatever and and so I was here I think April 22nd or 23rd, and we were together all day, walking the whole site, going over everything, and then got a call the next day from CW and said Terry had passed. And um, I was just shocked and dumbfounded as the whole club, and it just, it just rocked all of our world. I mean, our souls were crushed, and his, his wife, Dee Dee, worked 
with him in the office and at the golf course and she was part of the lakeside still is part of the lakeside family and all of ours terry hired everybody on his crew so the crew was so connected to him so literally that just the whole club the whole project every everybody was just crushed mm -hmm. and it really took a long time to get over uh and um you know, we were so fortunate that Dane Alexander had come on probably a month before that. Um, and so Dane is our director of agronomy now. And um, without his leadership and, and sensitivity, you know, here he is, he's the new guy. And he has to come in and manage Terry's crew. Mm -hmm. You know, they were Terry's crew and he had to win them over and earn their trust and get everybody to keep moving and so it's a real testament to dane and his not only his agronomic skills but his people skills to be able to hold the team together and the same goes for cw in terms of you know trying to manage through that process obviously cw is a west point guy so these are skills that he he has but his poise his leadership i think um, we're able to eventually we were all able to uh, move on with Terry with us by our side and um, so today uh, and yesterday very uh, very emotional very mm -hmm. bittersweet we know that Terry's here watching down in, in spirit and part of all this and nobody would be prouder of of the golf course and the club as it is today than Terry and he'll just be with us every step of the way Thank you for sharing that, because as a as a member, you don't always get you don't always get to know your superintendent, and, and shame on me. It makes me wish I would have invested more to get to know him. He sounds like a heck of a guy, but his legacy is going to be remembered here forever. With the new, we call it a short course part three. What is it? Yeah, so we have a little five hole short course okay. that uh, occupies where the old driving range was, and uh, very versatile space. You know, you could play it. Uh, clockwise one day and counterclockwise the next and the, the the space is built for fun right so some of the stuff that we wouldn't do out on the big golf course because it might be too too extreme or unfair or whatnot all of those things got built into the the little short course and so uh yesterday they announced that they're going to name the the short course the hutch which i think is very fitting awesome so we'll be able to grab a drink and a few clubs and go have some fun and let's go play the hutch i think it's very fitting you know anytime you were around terry you were in a good mood you were giggling you were high-fiving you were you were uh getting the most out of life and i think that's what that golf course is built for and hopefully that will provide uh, future generations of lakeside members lots of memories of uh, camaraderie and and giggles a couple more than uh I'll let you get back to what you were doing. Um, when you leave here tomorrow or today, you go back. We're, we have a golf course now, and then we're, <laughs> we're excited about that. But a lot of times when I play a course, I judge it by course conditions. And so, to my knowledge, you're not out here mowing the grass <laughs> or putting the proper herbicides or fertilizers on. So mm -hmm. that's in the hands of, I guess, our grounds crew or superintendent so is that important when you take on a project and, and this is a Jay Blasey design but it's up to them now to 
make sure it plays well going forward. For sure, and I think that um, many, many golfers probably judge golf courses more on conditioning than on architecture. Mm -hmm. um, and what is great um, conditioning? In my opinion, great conditioning is providing surfaces that allow the golf course uh, to play as it was designed. So, um, you know, if you have a more open golf course where you want the ball to roll and the conditioning is such that it's super lush and green and soft, in my opinion, opinion even though that might be compelling to some people's eye, that wouldn't be great conditioning. It doesn't match the golf course. Um, so I think it's critical to have a wonderful marriage or synergy between the design and the conditioning. And, you know, that happens by uh, working with the superintendent or director of agronomy and their team and, and working together to understand what are we trying to achieve as a designer? What can I do to set their team up for success? And from their perspective, what can they do to help bring out and enhance the design of the golf course? And so I spent a lot of time with Terry and with Dane talking about on each hole and each green complex, here, here's what we're trying to achieve. Are you going to be able to maintain that? You know, I'd really like this, this slope over here to be as steep as possible. How steep are you comfortable maintaining that slope if, if, if it's at fairway height? Uh, about if they're able to mow it. Yeah, yep. yeah. Can you get a mower on there without scalping? Is that safe? Things like that. Um, so that's the collaboration. You you were asking those things. Absolutely. Okay. Every single green complex, we were out there together, working together, trying to make sure that we could get it right. And you know, the golf course is a living, breathing thing. It evolves over time. Um, you know, uh, myself and a few others got to play yesterday in kind of a preview round and. I thought the course played beautifully. It's still very much in what we call a grow-in state, and you'll see there's sod out there, and you can still see the seams, and it's a time of year where the grass isn't actively growing, and so over the next few months into the spring and the summer, the golf course is going to change, and uh, it will evolve, and we'll probably adjust some mow lines and things like that, so we'll continue to work together to make sure that the golf course can be the best it can be as it, as it goes forward. So do you make sure that a, a club has a proper maintenance budget. So I'm just trying to figure out how you ensure that we're going to take care of your baby that you design. Yeah, the, again, those are all things that you want to talk about is, yep. is um, what is the property that we have? What's the golf course that we have? How do we want to maintain it so that it can bring out the, the character that we want to? What's the right equipment fleet? What's the right staffing level? what is the right schedule and plan um, you know many golf courses set their golf calendar this tournament's going to be then all that kind of stuff before they set their agronomic calendar when are we going to airify and top dress and all those things well in reality you know the agronomic calendar is most important should be the driver yeah right and so things like that and so those are things that you want to work with them on and and uh, you know different clubs have different resources and how do you get the most out of the resources that you do have and 
the right solution at one club in one climate might be different than another club in another climate. So it's just a matter of kind of working together, understanding what what are the goals we're trying to achieve and what's the right plan to get us there. Yeah. So is it common in your industry to <coughs> be able to use a finished pro product as a living, breathing brochure for pop your next opportunity? For would, sure, I if think. It, if it fit, would you bring someone out here and show them this if they're looking to hire you? Absolutely. Um, you know, you want. It's one thing to see a picture, and nowadays in the world of Twitter and Instagram, pictures and particularly drone images dominate everything. And those can be really misleading. You know, I was on a property earlier this week that see all sorts of. Instagram pictures of and you think one thing and then you get out on the property and you actually experience it for yourself and you think something completely different and so um, in terms of bringing clients or trying to share with others what you can do and how you can go about it absolutely you want to bring them to different places and show them recognizing that it's never going to be apples to apples what makes golf so great is that every site is different every mm -hmm. club's different but you could bring them here and say here here were the goals that we set out to achieve we think we hit all those goals here's how we did it and here's how it relates to your property and this is why we think uh it'd be a good fit and and uh, so yeah you want to you want to show off what you've done before for well, sure good I uh, like to see you back here as much as possible. I do too. You know, I got I got one bite of the apple. You know, it, the beauty of Lakeside is that there's so many members. It's a vibrant club and it's a great place to be. The challenge is that uh, you got the lottery for golf and things like that. So I got the I, I got the first bite at the apple. I'm eager to come back too. So I gotta I gotta find a way to get get back. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, as we talked about, we'll uh, adjust little mowing lines and things like that. So. Um, it's been an honor and a privilege to, to be here through this process and, and um, look forward to the opportunity to kind of continue that relation, come, come back regularly, be here uh, regularly, and, and enjoy the fruits of the labor for yeah, sure. It was a journey. What, five years? <laughs> five, five plus years, yes. <laughs> Lots I, of meetings. I, I started this journey with, with no child. He's in kindergarten now. So. <laughs> well, you took a chance on us, and we took a chance on you, and I think you were the right man for the job, and I just want to thank you for all the hard work and effort and grit you put into it. And um, I think we got a special golf course. I can't wait to play it. And thanks for just sharing this story with us. Well, it's a, again, it was an honor to be become part of the team. Uh, everyone here has kind of welcomed me as, as family and it's a, a special place with special people. And I'm eager for, so, so happy and eager for all the members to get out there and enjoy it and for the staff to have the vibrancy of the club back and everything it has been a fun and wonderful journey and uh look forward to it the journey continuing so thank right. you for the opportunity to talk about it absolutely thanks jack you bet it's great to be with you i saw